This week on the Backtable Podcast. You know what? I don't think it's that as much as a combination of everything, of interventional therapies, of multiple scopes, and different things like that. And so, I mean, to me, in the end, if I can rid someone of their tumor endoscopically in or with combination of interventional therapy, it's worth to me a small risk of bladder contracture vis-a-vis bladder removal. And so I think so I have tended to be aggressive, but at one setting, if things are going well, you know, yeah, I, I try to eradicate everything I can see, but I did tell you, you know, if I need to come back at a separate setting, I'm fine with that. I'm fine. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrode at your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Sam Chang from Vanderbilt University, where he is the chief of urologic oncology. And to me personally, I've really just enjoyed knowing Sam over the course of my career. Sometimes you come across people that despite never having worked directly together, you get the sense that they're rooting for you. They're kind of in your corner. And Sam, you really embody that for me. So thanks for coming on. How's it going out there in uh, Nashville today? Well, Nash Vegas, this is you, Aditya. Any, any warm words like that, we're always welcome visitors like yourself. But I, I don't hear words like that that often with our residents, because usually we have a conversation back and forth and they understand that I am trying to support them. But you know, we, we sometimes have tough love here too, but I just want to say from my point of view, it's easy to be supportive of individuals who are really trying to move the field forward and uh, are good people. And we're lucky in our field to have so many good people and uh, you're definitely ranked high on that list. Well, thanks, Sam. And I'm certainly looking forward to learning from you. You know, so Sam, first author for the AUA, Non-Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer Guidelines. And today we'll kind of try to focus on intermediate and high-risk bladder cancer patients. So let's just let's just jump on into it, Sam. So, you know, 101, any new bladder cancer patients, what are the kind of critical elements that you're, you're going to intake in terms of history exam and so forth? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, my history focuses on not necessarily a lot of symptoms, but a little bit in terms of avoiding symptoms, that type of thing. But I have gotten better, although I'm still not perfect, of really kind of getting into their smoking history. Are they active smokers? If they are, are they trying to quit? If they're not trying to quit, why not? So really trying to focus on, hopefully trying to get them off the, the cigarette uh, kind of bandwagon here. Second thing then after that is, if we talk a little bit about the symptoms, then we really dive into kind of what kind of evaluation have they had? What's been done? How's it been done? When's it been done? And uh, you know, just today, we're at the end of a day on Thursday, we saw a number of patients some have treatments spot on that you totally agree with, and some have treatments that you are totally unfamiliar with. Uh, and so you really want to get an idea, and it's something that I really tease out with the residents of, okay, I want to know when the procedure was, and when they got their treatment, what kind of treatment they got, et cetera. And so that to me is the key in terms of history for anybody who has recurrent disease. The first timers, the ones that we diagnose, focus on their smoking history, and then I say, okay, we've got to go to the operating room. So it kind of differentiates until, you know, those that are initial cancer diagnosis versus those that have recurrence. All right. So maybe we'll start out with the initial diagnostics. Um, so generally, I'm assuming they're coming in with some type of imaging, hematuria workup, et cetera, something suspicious. Uh, if it's suspicious enough on their imaging, do you do an office cystoscopy or is that patient going straight to the OR? Head peeve. Why do a procedure over again other than you just want to charge that patient for a procedure and have them go through the discomfort of an in-office system. Now, that's for lesions that are obvious. I mean, you, you, you've gotten scans, you've gotten some ultrasounds where there's a papillary lesion or there are multiple papillary lesions or there are multiple solid worsen lesions or there's calcifications in something. You know you're going to take that individual to the operating room. So in all honesty, I don't do an office cystoscopy. If there's any doubt, if there's, you'll get referrals for bladder lesion, bladder mass, that type of thing. Yeah, I'll definitely cysto those people, do it in office cystoscopy in order to try to avoid that anesthetic procedure down the line. But, you know, there are times where you don't know, yeah, you need to do an in office cysto. 
But I think if it's pretty clear on imaging, then I think I really don't like doing an office system. I really like then explaining to the patient, hey, I'm going to take some pictures in the operating room. I'm really big into that. I really think that's important. If they're not they're awake, seeing it in the in-office system. If they are under anesthesia, I really like to take pictures. And then I really like to share those pictures with the patient as well as their family, just so they have an idea of, okay, this is what we've got. And I usually take a before and after. All right, here's the before. This is what it looks after. And now we'll figure out what we need to do based upon the pathology. Yeah, I like that. What do you do? Do, do you do the same thing? The short answer is yes for a new diagnosis coming through my hands. If it's outside referrals, it's pretty much a trust but verify type of phenomenon. You know, how many complete resections have you been referred that they've got Boku's a tumor? Sometimes if the imaging suggests that it's really close to the UO. Yeah. I don't really do this, but conceptually, if they may require a resection and a stent, et cetera, I might like to know that information, but it's not really going to change things. And we'll, we'll kind of get to this a little bit down the way. Good, because I, I do, I do want to talk to you about uh, disease at the ureteral orifice and kind of your strategies and your goals, but we'll save that if you want, because I'm an outlier, I think, in, in my group. And so I'd love to kind of hear what you have to say about that. All right. So a uh, quick question. So office cysto tips and tricks. I mean, you know, it's a straightforward procedure. Do you do anything to try to make this uh, better tolerable for patients? Uh, you know, studies have been done showing that the, the viscous lidocaine really doesn't help other studies have been done talking about, you know, putting pressure on the bag to help open and decrease discomfort. You know, even if studies show that they haven't necessarily been helpful, we do everything we can to make it, you know, a little bit easier, a little bit more tolerable. So we do viscous lidocaine. We do put pressure as the scope is being passed. We do everything we can to try to explain. We've really gotten into patient videos and educational videos. This is one where we've really avoided it because we think it would cause even more anxiety and more worry about, well, you're going to put that and this. So we really tried to talk through things. Let me tell you the best preparation and decreased anxiety technique we have in our clinic, and that's our nurses. So we have dedicated four or five folks that are procedure nurses and they're LPNs, they're, you know, a couple RNs, they're even some MAs that help set things up. I tell you what, they're the ones that really will be doing all the, I don't want to say dirty work, but will be doing all the counseling before you walk into that room. And they're the ones that are really helpful. Within actually then passing the scope in and doing anything technical, you develop your own technique. Honestly, your first or second or third year of practice you're going to spend 10 times longer than you do after your fifth year and sixth year practice in terms of how carefully and what you look at within the bladder. You know, it depends on certain situations regarding other tricks. We do not have in-office blue light cystoscopy, flexible cystoscopy, you guys may, and that's something you may want to bring up. We don't have that. We haven't bought the equipment. But I will say that scope is probably the best scope I've used as a wonderful irrigation and suction combination that you can use. The optics are fantastic and you can use both white light and blue light, but we still use uh, plain uh, in-office white light cystoscopy. And we have just started using, literally today, it was the first day that I used a flexible disposable scope because of the issues with the storage recall. And so we bought more than $100,000 worth of disposable flexible scopes. And we knew that this was happening and I didn't know it was going to be day one was actually my clinic. And so about halfway through the clinic, I acted like I knew exactly how this scope worked. It's uh, The optics are really pretty good or honestly better than I thought. Yeah, we, ha we have them here. And, um, you know, certainly if I was a resident, I wouldn't mind having a couple of fellow of those around to put in complex catheters, et cetera. Certainly I thought got the job done. The working channel I thought is a little bit clunkier. And of course, the deflection is kind of opposite from a typical, but certainly, I think, uh, adequate by any metric. Oh, for sure, for sure. And again, like anything, there's no substitute for experience. And so the more you do, the better you get. And so what we did do is we do have, you know, the residents will be doing certain procedures in the clinic. We've made sure that at least early on, we're, we're going to have the residents not use that flexible scope that's disposable early on just until they kind of get a little bit more comfortable with it. So, yeah, and I totally 
agree with you. We have some, you know, light music playing and go with the bag squeeze. I mean, our colleagues across the pond, the EAU actually have it within their guidelines now to do a little bag squeeze. But I think, you know, these are small things, certainly can't hurt. Exactly. Excellent. So now, you know, you've kind of made the decision. Patients got to go to the OR. Talk to me a little bit, you know, so obviously you're at an academic medical center. I've kind of got my spiel with the residents that they hear every time we first do like a TRBT. What are your kind of tips and tricks for for that initial TRBT? And are you doing these with blue light? Yeah. So I would say probably blue light, I would say 80% are done with blue light, just all covers, initial diagnoses, follow-up diagnoses, that type of thing. There's certain scenarios where we always use blue light, for instance, recurrent disease, multifocal disease, those with a positive cytology, we haven't been able to find something. Those always get blue light. We know patients with invasive disease that we're doing bladder sparing, that we're doing basically a maximal TUR prior to initiation of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, trimodality therapy. I don't do blue light. I'm resecting invasive disease. I don't see a huge benefit in finding a small papillary area somewhere else. But some of the tricks, again, it's like anything that we do in medicine. This is one where you really need to see a couple and then you need to kind of what happens? Well, then the transition is to someone with uh, a papillary tumor that's not too deep, that's not too large. The residents start resecting kind of basically superficial. So they get an idea. And then I gradually then employ them into, okay, we start. And I always like to start a resection in normal appearing bladder. And it's a combination of both speed and a sense of judiciousness. So you can go both ways. You can be so careful. You get so much cautery artifact. You really don't have a good specimen. It gets macerated, whatever. Or you go too quickly and you get a, you know, a hole that's much larger than you'd like. So I really focus on a combination of, I want a combination of speed and judiciousness. I want to start in normal tissue. I want to resect. And I want to resect in a way that I'm removing as much tissue as possible with each resection bite. So early on, everyone tends to get small bites and, and feel comfortable, and that's a good start. But I really would emphasize to them, look, we need to get tissue specimens that are helpful for a pathologist. Let's get actually a, a, a real specimen bite and, and go through there. I'm very much into separating specimens when I can. Sometimes you can't do that, but I really like to resect normal, deep, send that off. If it's a large tumor, then resect as much as I can of the superficial stuff, send that off, but then send separate specimens, hopefully of good quality, less cautery artifact of the kind of mucosa, T1, hopefully T2 kind of combination, just to help our pathologist out as much as possible. So I think those are just some initial tricks. Cold cups at all? Yeah, I think I use cold cups as, as much as anyone because I, I tend to, when I'm concerned about a tumor, I tend to use both a loop and cold cup. So what I like to do is actually re resect a tumor and then in an area where I think there might still be some tumor, might resect, maybe for the last resection, I like then a combination of mucosa, hopefully laminar propria muscle right at the edge of your previous resection site and take several of those biopsies to give pathology a non-cauterized specimen and hopefully one that has orientation of mucosa, laminar propria and muscle. I think that sounds great. Totally agree with you, the art of it. And I think the perfect amount of distension to keep your loop cutting through it like a knife through butter. If it's under distended, you're going to cauterize the crap out of your specimen. If it's over distended, particularly in a thin wall bladder, et cetera, that, you know, comes around with its risks. But I think that perfect amount of distension, and then I'll, I'll actually, I've kind of gone back to a staccato type of resection to minimize some of that cardio artifact. And I always tell the residents, if anything feels off, just take your foot off the gas. First things first, you've just got to let go and, you know, you're not going to have a big hole or a perf or something terrible like that. Along those lines, I think your point of the perfect amount of distension is one of the most difficult things as residents go through this procedure to understand, to pay attention to. So when residents spend time with me, it's the twos, the PGY two, so the first year urology residents spend a day with me in cystoscopy room, and then I work with chiefs and fellows and bigger pieces, but it's that they either will get a false sense of security because we'll have a continuous flow in terms of just 
an open bottom stopcock and they think, oh, everything's fine. And then what, what ends up happening is they're overdistended and they don't appreciate that. Or because they have continuous flow, the bladder hasn't filled up enough and they think everything is okay. And just as you say, they have a combination of char or, I mean, you know this, when your bladder's under distended and you take a big bite, your bite is much bigger than, you know, you anticipate the bladder folds on itself. And then when you distend the bladder, there's some shiny fibers or fat layers. And so that combination of have constant recognition. And so I think appreciation of that is really important. The staccato method, we just I actually just talked to a chief about that yesterday. Honestly, we were resecting laterally and just went over, okay, what are ways we can avoid an obturator reflex? And, you know, there was some struggle. It was like, well, okay, you know, it's it's been a few years since we do this. And it's one of those things where we're probably not as good as programs should be in terms of really working on resection. And so we talked about staccato. And just as you said, look, if, if there's, by doing that staccato, if there's a kick, if there's an issue, you're not constantly jammed on that electric cautery, burning a hole where you don't want it to burn. So I, I love both those points that you made. So checklist for me, it's, you know, size, number, focality, completely resected, presence of carcinoma in situ, was muscle clearly sampled, you know, have they have a previous recurrence or not examined or anesthesia? Are these all, you know, especially for settings where the residents are dictating VA, county hospitals, et cetera, sometimes I'm like, you know, your dictation needs to be completely reproducible so that if it is three months later and your colleague and your partner and your co-resident seeing them, they know exactly what transpired in the OR, what to look out for. Any comments on that? Yeah, you know, I think you might you might have been there when Chris Anderson actually after a while he was at Memorial worked with Harry Her going over kind of what do expert kind of endoscopists do, what what are their thought process, how they and he queried different folks in terms of what's important, what's not. And there's actually that was the basis for in the guidelines to talk about all those things that you say to make sure that's included in the operative note. So I don't harp on that as specifically as I should. What I do harp on is when you dictate your operative note for a bladder tumor, I want whatever way you describe it, it can be systematic, but in a way that it's as if you were looking in the bladder and you know what's going on, okay? So I need to know what's going on at the dome. And is it near the rear orifice? What does it look like? You don't have to use the exact, you just give me terms that tell me, you know, and so I tell them I'll use terms like carpeting and, you know, covered and, you know, ju just so you would have an idea of exactly the points that you raise regarding location, size, the nature of the tumor, all those things are essential. And then importantly, at the end of the procedure, what do things look like? You know, completely resected or you know, concerned about residual disease, all those things I think are important because you're going to be the next individual back in that bladder or evaluating the bladder. You want to know. And undoubtedly, one of the things that I've done more now than I've done in the past is I've done stage resections when I know that I'm going to come back. So I want to clear out as much of the bladder in an area as safely as possible because then I We'll have an idea of the stage of the tumor. So if at that point I understand I've gotten invasive disease, I want to move forward. If not, then I do tend to come back within a couple weeks or so and do a repeat resection. I worry about perforation. I worry about poor visualization, those types of things. And so I have done that, especially with high volume tumors. Yeah, that's that's critical. So if you're worried about extensive carcinoma in situ, do you try to resect all of it, Sam? Yeah, I don't try to resect it, to be honest. CIS, if I'm really concerned about CIS, CIS is one where I really tend not to resect. I tend to get cold cut biopsy forceps because I think you get the best specimens. Any char on that superficial mucosa you worry about. But then I do full gray all areas that look worrisome. I have no idea. And I would love a, a study to, to look at this if it makes any difference. You know, the problem is there's so many ways that CIS presents and you're missing unquestionably even with blue light areas with microscopic CIS. Well, on the flip side, I hear Dr. Hur's voice in my ear saying, what good does it do for you to leave it there? You know it's superficial and you cauterize it. If you cauterize it, you're only talking about five cell layers thick. You, you've destroyed that. 
you haven't destroyed it all, but you've removed a lot of tissue. Now, does that change the carcinogenesis of the tumor at all? I, I don't know, but it sure doesn't hurt. And I tend to do that. I, I'm curious to hear what you say, because there are zealots who say that's the one of the stupidest things you've said, Sam. And there are many who say, oh, absolutely. I, I try to remove all the tumors. So I wonder what you do. I'm with you. I mean, I kind of feel a little guilty every time. Let me back up. Is there a maximum resection fulguration surface area estimated of the bladder that you kind of call it a day at? You know, I feel like sometimes I'd heard these like kind of random stats that once you get up upwards of a third or a half of the bladder that's been cauterized or resected, you really run into contractile bladders and so forth. Wow. No, I have heard that. I don't. Now, I've not resected more than half a bladder. Okay. But have I cauterized two thirds of a bladder or? Yes, I have. Has that contributed to changes in bladder volume, size, et cetera, et cetera? You know what? I don't think it's that as much as a combination of everything of intravesical therapies, of multiple scopes, and different things like that. And so, I mean, to me, in the end, if I can rid someone of their tumor endoscopically and or with combination of intravesical therapy, it's worth to me a small risk of bladder contracture vis-a-vis bladder removal. And so I think, so I have tended to be aggressive, but at one setting, if things are going well, you know, yeah, I, I try to eradicate everything I can see, but I did tell you, you know, if, if I need to come back at a separate setting, I'm fine with that. I'm fine. With yeah. And I don't, I don't resect all the CIS. I, I do cauterize it, anything visible, white light, blue light, try to get rid of it. But I don't know, sometimes I get my loop, you're, you got a good thing going, you're just kind of arcing enough current, you're getting a good, you know, fulguration. It's like mowing the lawn or vacuum cleaning. And But I, I also just kind of hear Harry, her in the background, kind of explaining the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. What about diverticula? If you've got tumor in diverticula, how do you approach that? Okay, so were you in my clinic today? What do you, what do you, some, some kind of psychic or whatever? I just, uh, the, my I just, favorite thing about this podcast, I get to ask about the oddball I, stuff. I, I just, I just like got off, leaders. I just got off the phone from, from someone who came up and long story short, healthy, except he had a heart attack, got put on blood thinner, had hematuria, someone scoped him oh, you've got something going on your bladder. You should have something done, but just had stents in, had to wait. In the meantime, he did research and he came up here and he wanted to have a blue light cysto, et cetera. So lo and behold, he ends up having CIS and a tick and tumor in the rim of the tick. So here's my take on bladder diverticulum and non-invasive cancer or T1 disease in a tick. I hate partial cystectomy and diverticulectomy for bladder cancer and tumor in a tick. When's the last time I did it? Haven't done it in 20 years. Do I believe it's an effective therapy? No. What does it say in the textbooks? That's what you should do. I don't believe it. So my algorithm is you sample as carefully as you can the tumor if it looks papillary. You know, if it looks worrisome, I advocate cystectomy because it's tumor there that's worrisome is just like tumor somewhere else that's worrisome that you cannot completely resect. So think of a T1 tumor that you can't completely resect or high grade TA, you can't for whatever reason, you cannot completely resect. I recommend cystectomy. So widely so. That's arc number one or path split cystectomy. The other is I tend to treat these with intravesical therapy and aggressive TUR and fulguration. And the majority of patients end up doing fine. I really counsel them saying, look, if you want to try to save your bladder, we're taking a real risk here. And I have had a handful of patients that I've tried intravesical therapy that have exploded. And would that have happened if I'd taken out the bladder or, or done a diverticulectomy? I think disease trumps everything. I think probably so, but I don't know for sure. You know, these folks with disease in the diverticulum, you don't give them neoadjuvant therapy. So it's cystectomy. Would I have changed those people that really had widespread nodal disease quickly? I don't know, but I definitely, you know, successfully treated diverticular disease with BCG or interfestable chemotherapy and endoscopic resection. And that's what I'm going to do with this gentleman. I'm going to try. We just did a resection. I just talked to them. 
we're going to do BCG and we'll, we'll take a careful look. What do you do? Yeah, I don't know that I'm quite as, I don't like partial cystectomy and a diverticulum for cancer because, I mean, just the tumor spill part of it is so freaky to me. Like, how do you actually get that fellow out without spilling tumor? You know, it's posterior, it's by the UO, like. Answers you don't. It's just you, yeah, exactly. spillage. There's there's no doubt. Yeah. So I, that part, I don't like at all one bit whatsoever. I totally agree with you. You know, you have to look at it and assess it. If it's chock full of tumor, you know, the die is cast. Yeah, I agree. If it's not, you know, I, absolutely intravescular therapy would be my, my first line opinion. And the only thing is in surveillance, I will pepper in axial imaging a little bit more. And I like a bladder MRI just to see, you know, make sure you're not being fooled that the Eurothelium looks okay and something's going gangbusters out of the backside. That's a great point. And so I haven't done that, but I think I might now talk. I mean, I think, I think that's a great point. I do, in terms of treatment, I think that, or endoscopic treatment, I almost never loop within the diverticulum, to be honest. I tend to cold cup everything within the diverticulum and then I'll roll a ball or I'll full grate. I just think especially with a diverticulum with a more narrow mouth, I don't think I can have as good a purchase and distension. And so I do, that is one alteration. Now, along the rim of a diverticulum where you've got, I'll be aggressive and I'll resect that rim and almost open that diverticulum up more. But then within the tick, I tend to use coca bias forceps. Yeah, same. I mean, I, I think the rim's a little bit more forgiving and, you know, like by certain, you almost like by definition, you have some muscular hypertrophy right at the rim. So not quite as, as freaky. Okay, great. So what about, do you use a monopolar or a bipolar? Both, I'd say probably 85% monopolar, 10 to 15% bipolar. Kind of what's available or do you feel strongly about it? I think if I know that there's a large bulky tumor, I then tend to start off the case bipolar, just because I think I'll be resecting longer, those types of things. My default is monopolar, mainly for visualization, looking at it with water, the lysis and, and visualization, I think is better. I still think things cut better monopolar, but maybe that's just because I'm, I'm more used to it. But for high volume disease that I know, the reason why our sets actually come with both monopolar and bipolar, actually instruments in, in our trays, but I've always found it a little bit cumbersome to switch the bags and this and that. So. I tend to, when I start with mono, and this is just, I would say, what's the term? Laziness. I tend to do monopolar. If I've started it, I'll keep it monopolar. Knowing uh, something, high volume disease and see on imaging, seeing on a cysto, I'll start off with bipolar and stay with bipolar because I know I'll be respecting longer. I think some, you know, some places have gone, and maybe you guys have, you know, some places exclusively do bipolar. And there's no question bipolar gives a better pathologic specimen. But if you look at, there have been some small comparative trials looking at bipolar, and there's there's actually no significant benefit that these small studies have shown. There's no significant benefit in terms of less blood loss, less opportunity reflex, less issues with hypogonate treatment. Even in these small studies, clearly all of them showed less cautery artifact at the time for specimen evaluation by our pathology colleagues. Yeah, I'm totally with you. You know, it's despite the fact that these technologies are available, there's what's the irrigant available, what's kind of the set, what kind of energy devices in the room. For Terps, I'm pretty into bipolar. I like that, preferably just for kind of TUR syndrome, but for like a non-bulky bladder, I'm not very particular and I kind of prefer monopolar. What about if the if you got tumor around the UO? How do you kind of approach that, Sam? So I would say the majority of our of my colleagues here will resect and place a stent. I am of the ilk, again, voice in my ear, there's tumor there, resect it. And that voice would be, Dr. I, I remember, I just remember distinctly, I would be spending all this time trying to find the ureter orifice. And he'd be like, oh, oh, what? there's tumor. You got to, you got to resect it. That's got to be Del Bagney. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Del Bagney would walk in and go, oh, oh. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I resect. And what I do then is if I can see the ureter orifice, if I can see urine coming out of it, if I've not, and I really try to avoid charring around it, but I, I will point cauterize around it. I don't place a stent. And 
Knock on wood, I, I haven't had a high stenosis rate. There's unquestionably some patients that have developed stenosis, but I think it may be due to a number of resections and or therapy, intravesical therapy afterwards. And I've had it follow up. I've had to put up stents. And then I worry about disease, sometimes disease, but a lot of times it's fibrosis. And I've had some luck dilating those and, and that. But at the time of, if there's tumor in the ureteral orifice, I resect the ureteral orifice and try to get rid of all disease. Point cauterize areas, don't leave a stent. If I'm really worried then, but did you? Have, I will have them come back. You know, in a, you know, we could discuss their pathology. I, I will. I'll get an ultrasound on that day, or in the clinic, I'll have our resident just put an ultrasound probe on that side, make sure that they haven't developed, you know, stenosis and that type of thing. But knock on wood, I think we've been okay without putting up a stent. Totally different from most of my partners here. And what about if you can't see the UO? I resect, you know, I just keep resecting. And most of the times I'll have a CT scan and I'll know if they have hydro or not before the resection. And if they don't have hydro, then I just resect. And I keep resecting until I've gotten rid of the, all the tumor. Then I'll look for the UO again. And if I don't find the UO, you know, sometimes I'll get fluorescein or I'll give something or, you know, with the blue light, the urine looks yellow and I'll look for it. If I don't find anything, I, I don't put a perk, I don't stop, I don't. Most of the time, if they didn't have hydro before, you're not going to cause hydro. I'll see them back. Those folks, almost for sure, if I didn't see the O, I'll see them back within a few weeks and I'll get some kind of upper tract imaging. If I'm really worried, I'll get a scan. If I'm not, I'll get an ultrasound because if they didn't have hydro before, it's unlikely you've caused hydro. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit more nervous Nelly about it sometimes I'll keep okay no I I want to I want to hear what you do because I want to learn from you man because you tell me kind of what you do if I see it 100% don't stent it urine's coming out I think they're going to be fine and you know haven't really been burned in that department if I don't see it I'll keep them overnight get an ultrasound the next day make them NPO at midnight with the possibility of a perk integrated stent placement I don't really know that a week of hydro that was iatrogenic is going to change much. I think doing it, you know, when they follow up is totally reasonable. And if they get flank pain, et cetera, you, you kind of got to handle it. But that's, you know, it's just kind of a different way. I know. I, lo I love the, I love the safety of that, honestly. And you have instant, you know, okay, we're, we're okay. We're okay. So I'm good with that. What about um, if they're getting a TERP, they need an outlet procedure, say it's like a longstanding patient. Do you have any issues or problems just handling the TERP at the same time as a TRBT? No. And somebody's been done looking at that in terms of, are there is there increased seating rate or issues with that in terms of recurrence? And none have been shown. But I'll be honest, I have tended not to do that because our whole up people are so much better than me doing a loop term. I'm just like, they remove a lot more tissue and it really doesn't bleed. And we still get tissue, you know, from a whole up. And so if they really need a real outlet procedure, then I tend to say, okay, we're going to do separate. If they have a median lobe or something that like, okay, this is the real issue, we can remove some of that. I have no problems doing it at the same time and I'll do it. But if they have really issues with voiding, it's clearly from the prostate, I set them up for a whole lot. If it's indicated positive, persistent positive cytology, et cetera, how do you sample the prostate urethra? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe I'm a, a bit of an overkill, but I'll do actually cold cup odyssey bites at both five and seven o'clock. So there's some slides that I've seen that basically that the majority of ductal ACE and I are basically concentrating those areas on the clock. And so I'll do coca biopsies, bladder neck, boom, boom, clean, sent off. And then I'll loop basically five o'clock, seven o'clock from the bladder neck out to the verimentatum. And I usually take a few swipes in those areas. And that's what I do with initial evaluation. I think the next question is, okay, now you find urethelial carcinoma maybe glandular, maybe ductal, what do you do? And that's a question that we debate about here quite a bit. I, I tend to be, again, uh, try to save kind of person and I'll want to rule out stromal invasion, obviously, but then I'll do myself and I'll go back and I'll do a TRP 360 degrees, bladder neck, viru, 
I don't remove all the all the adenomatous tissue, but I, I try to get fairly deep in a circumferential manner and then send off and get an idea of kind of, all right, where are we at? And I still try BCG in those patients if there's no stroke involvement. Gotcha. Post-operatively, uh, catheter insertions, how do you make that determination? Who needs a catheter? If there's any doubt, I leave a catheter in. Yeah, that's a good question. When you say doubt, you mean doubt that you have a couple of micro perfs or doubts whether they're going to be able to pee? Yes. All of the above? <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. You know, how bloody are they? You know, what, what does it look like? Uh, you know, all those things. And, you know, I'll be honest, early on, I, I tried to not leave a catheter in anybody. I really tried to limit that. Okay, control of bleeding, this and that. Now I probably leave catheters in more than I have ever, because like anything in medicine, you want to be evidence-based, but if you just had a couple recently that come back with a clot retention or, or went into retention for whatever, whatever reason, and they're in an outside ER or RER, what? So I tend to almost leave a catheter in everyone for the recovery room. And just to, and a lot of them are getting perioperative chemotherapy different, but they have a catheter. For women, it has to be pretty deep and pretty extensive for me to send them home with a catheter or pretty bloody. For older men, my kind of threshold for keeping a catheter in is pretty low now. I think the more difficult question is how long. I don't want to leave it in three weeks, two weeks. I usually leave it in. I usually resect Mondays and Tuesdays, or those are my main OR days. So usually I get the catheter out early on the morning Thursday or early on the morning Friday. So they don't have to worry about a catheter over the weekend. And if they get into trouble, we can deal with it before the, the weekend. Sounds totally reasonable. I mean, I think it, some patients ask for it, especially, you know, repeat TUR folks. You're just like, Doc, can you put a catheter in? I don't want to screw around with it. And I respect that. Really, really good point for people who are traveling from far away who know that I'm going to have some frequency and urgency. Just leave, leave. And then those patients with more frequent visits, you know, they're the ones who are comfortable with Here's your syringe, take your catheter out. And, you know, they already have a built-in kind of educational system where they can utilize their learning and facilitate safety as well as convenience. So you mentioned post-operative installations. Who are your patients that are, let's say, initial diagnosis, suspected bladder cancer? Who are the patients that are getting post-operative gemcitabine, I presume? You know, it, it honestly very few at that point. If it's the initial diagnosis, for different reasons. One, if, if it ends up being high grade, I'm going to give that individual BCG. If it ends up being low grade, you know, honestly, the majority of those patients, I, I want to see how they do without any therapy. So for the initial diagnosis, it's not common that I give perioperative chemotherapy. Very different from European guidelines, a bit different from what our guidelines say in terms of an option, but in my practice, I tend not to give it at the initial diagnosis. For those patients with recurrent disease, recurrent low-grade disease, then I use it quite liberally, quite often. A question that was brought up by Peter Barafilo, which I think is a good question, is if you have higher volume, low-grade disease, it's a second time, and you've given perioptive gemcitabine, you know, multiple tumors, you know, what do you do now? Do you give an induction six-week course? Do you re-sister them in a couple months? Do you put them on maintenance and then sister them in the office? And, you know, I don't think the guidelines are very clear regarding that scenario. I just got that today from, from our fellow, like, well, you would give this patient induction VCG. And I go, I said, you know, that wouldn't be wrong, but actually I'm going to scope them in a few months and see how they do, because it's the first time that patient got a perioperative dose, and maybe that's all they need. And I'm going to go with that. But I'd love to hear from you. You've got someone with intermediate risk disease that you've given perioperative chemotherapy to. The pathology is not high grade, it's low grade, or and you've given them. What makes your next decision tree? What do you tend to do? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's a inconvenient, not dangerous situation. And I, I certainly taking account the patient comorbidities, if they're older, sicker, and I'm trying to keep them out of the OR, I'm 
trying to really do that. So if it's a solitary less than three centimeter tumor and it looks low grade, I'll give them a dose. I mean, just like yourself, most of these patients are coming in referred and they've already had a resection. So that ship has sailed. I do beat it into the resident's head. You know, this, you got to kind of think about this at the point of care, because if you don't, it's gone. Yeah. So recurrent low-grade tumors, status post and induction course of BCG. always think it's good to re-image the upper tracts, make sure they're not having drop mats from the upper tracts. I think that's something I've seen at least a handful of times. One of the things with flexible blue light that I liked is we would actually just instill lidocaine at the same time as the CISFU. Okay. And my like rate of office biopsy fulgurations went up, you know, so I, I'm saving trips to the OR. I'm able, I feel a little bit, it's like a bit of a less of a to-do to just be like, all right, you know, whatever, we've, we've already got a catheter going in, let's biopsy fulgurate it. And then the final bit is I'll actually scope them a little bit more frequently early on. So if I'm picking up these low-grade tumors and I've established that they're low-grade, I can kind of handle them without an anesthetic and everything that kind of comes along with that. But yeah, I mean, with you then, it's going to be, you know, a bit of a judgment on the natural history. If they're recurrent low-grade, by definition, they're intermediate risk. And to me, intermediate risk is super heterogeneous, you know, low-grade recurrent or multifocal low-grade. Like, I'm not worried about that. I, you know, it's like mowing the lawn or spring cleaning. It's a high grade that kind of changes the game. So to kind of summarize, image of the upper tracts, solitary low-grade tumors, older patients, I really want to keep them out of the OR. That's kind of, I think, an ideal candidate for a single post-op installation. If they keep on rapidly recurring, then I try to do everything I can to save them trips to the OR. And, you know, I'm really reluctant to use BCG for low-grade disease unless I've kind of burnt through everything. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's my default, you know, to add on to your points, I do use maintenance gemcitabine. Once monthly for a year? Do it once monthly for six to 12 months. And what I've found in, you know, certain patients, and who do I put those on? When people have shown me a real tendency to recur quickly with high volume, even if it's low grade, just nuisance-wise to control. And so I will put them on monthly and I'll be scoping them in between. And if they respond well and are doing well, then I'll put them on once a quarter for a year. And then if they're still doing, and people tolerate gemcitabine, I think, really well. I do the same with patients that I've given gem for BCG unresponsive disease. Now I do a little bit more gem dossi, but there are definitely patients that I've salvaged that I've given gemcitabine induction done well, and I put them on maintenance gemcitabine, and they don't want to stop because they've been through the whole BCG and they're worried about their bladders removed, and I've definitely had some long-term players on maintenance therapy. So I, I think that's really important. A second point that I want to emphasize that probably we do it more because we don't have in-office ability for full duration that type of thing is I do a lot of surveillance for low-grade non-invasive. I'll see one or two, they'll see it, and I'll say, you don't want to go to the operating room. I don't want to take you to the operating room. And everybody's like, yep. Well, why, I'll take a look in six months, all right? If you have bleeding, you have problems, we'll, we'll look at it. So we'll get, and I, you know, the majority of those patients, we can go for a long time without. I wish we had in office flexible blue light system just because the scope is good and we can do those things like you, you mentioned. We're gonna hopefully get that capability in our clinic at some point. But in the meantime, I do do low grade recurrence or treatment with that for surveillance in older, non-healthy patients, or even young patients who like, hey, it's not good. I'm good with that. Six months, I'll take a look. But they have to have the pathology. You know, they have to really have benign, low-grade looking lesions. And then in those patients, I do send a cytology because if that cytology is positive, then there's at least a hint that this might be high-grade that I will take the operation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I, I've basically, for folks with a history of low-grade cancer, I've stopped sending cytology. It's kind of consistent with the with the guidelines. Now, who are you taking back for re-resections? You mentioned stage resections a couple of times. I think that's the better part of valor. Instead of unresectable, calling it a day, your bladder's coming out, just admitting that whether it's visibility or operative duration, et cetera. But TA high-grade patients, who are you taking back for repeat resections? When there's a lot of tumor and you just want to make sure that you've gotten all the tumor. There are bladders where there can be a lot of tumor and you feel really confident you got all the tumor. And there are others where it's bloody, it's difficult to see. 
location may be difficult, their anatomy may be difficult, all those things. And before I put them in one category or another category in terms of intravesical therapy, I'll set them up for a repeat resection in a few weeks. So anybody that I'm worried about incomplete resection, and then obviously the T1 tumors that we do, I am really a believer in repeat resection for any T1, muscle present, muscle line. There have been articles that, that have been put out, it's one in European urology from a few years ago, say, you know, in certain T1 tumors, you can avoid the repeat resection. And, you know, why go through that? You know, my counter argument to that is if you're going to try to spare a bladder, you want to do everything that you can, in my opinion, to make sure it's okay to spare this bladder. And so, yes, there's morbidity. Yes, there's cost. But when you still have a detectable understaging rate, with even these smaller and you think completely resected, why take the risk? So I tend to, you know, when I do it, I tend to repeat uh, T1s that I've done and, and clearly those that others have done. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm pretty, I mean, for T1 high grades, I think it's pretty much a no-brainer unless you're fairly confident that the bladder's coming out, then we can talk about that. Yeah, good point. But I think MRIs may help out a bit. I don't know if it's really going to, you know, because the post-treatment, resection artifact, et cetera, that to me, just seems like it'd be a tough thing for MRI to sort out. So if it's TA high grade, no muscle, is that a reflex take back or does it kind of depend on the size, location, completeness over section? Yeah, good question. No, I'm fine. If it's not invasive, I'm fine not, not having muscle. I mean, you know, I really am. I, in those, that almost inevitably happens in a high volume case where you have lots too, where you're trimming and you've probably given cupfuls, multiple cupfuls, and there might be muscle somewhere. And, and those patients, I'd rather get rid of all the tumor as much as I can and not be so concerned about getting muscle that could actually make it more difficult for you, say you get a bleeding or you're worried about a perf, then you're not going to be really concentrating on getting rid of all the tumor. So if things look superficial, I, I tend not to worry too much about getting muscle. You know, the problem is when you have a high-grade TA and it's lots and lots of tumor, you don't have muscle, you know, should you go back and get muscle? Well, those patients, a lot of times I do repeat resection anyway, because I want to make sure I've gotten all the tumor. But if there's a few tumors and there's no muscle and you feel comfortable with that in terms of all the tumors removed, I don't do repeat resections for high-grade TA. You tell me, what do you do? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, an analogy that kind of quickly comes. There are some who definitely say, oh, you got to. Right. But I, I tend not to. The the analogy that kind of comes to mind is that like any suspected Fournier's needs to go to the OR. And every trip to the OR in an older, sicker patient has potential consequences. You know, multiple anesthetics in older patients. I mean, if you resected it and feel good about it, it was accessible, all the kind of things that you described. I don't think you'd have to rush back there, you know, in two to six weeks to hammer things out again. If you're a little bit more worried about if it's a difficult resection, if it's particularly large or particularly multifocal, I see very little downside, but I'm not dogmatic about everybody's got to go back if there's no muscle. I think there can be harms and, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's not really a technical thing. It's a, it's a pathology issue. I mean, this is not like, you know, you, you and I are not the first persons, I'm sure, to say I a thousand percent saw muscle and the pathologist is, tells us that there's no muscle present. So Sam, we have not even made it out of the OR in terms of any type of like management. We've basically spent this time talking about, you know, really trying to get the diagnosis correct. And uh, I mean, I've certainly learned a lot, but I don't think it's going to be feasible at all whatsoever to talk about the management of intermediate and high risk bladder cancer during this episode. So, well, did you? I appreciate just, you know, talking through these scenarios as, as patients are in the operating room. What do you do? What do you think about? Because I think every patient presents different sets of situations and scenarios. And so I love the fact that we're able to talk about a lot of different scenarios because that's what clinicians face every day. And I didn't get to ask you about what's behind you on the wall. Like, I want to know what that one is or what that one is, but that's for another time. And then I can tell you what's behind my wall. We'll catch up another time. This was excellent, Sam. So maybe if you could... I sometimes get the sense that TRBT is dismissed as a not important, not glamorous procedure. But to me, it's 
massive. You know, if you're, if you're going with bladder sparing approaches, you need to establish the diagnosis. Hopefully it's diagnostic and therapeutic. You can really hurt somebody. And, you know, last but not least, we're oncologists, we're cancer surgeons. You want to get the cancer out. So I think, you know, digging into some of these components is quite valuable. But any parting thoughts from your end to the listenership about preparing yourself for a TURBT? Yeah, I think the most important thing is before going into the case, you know, have as much of an idea of what's going on with the patient as possible. So I, the residents know, I harp on this. I want to know, okay, was the cytology positive? I want to know what the imaging shows. I want to have an idea of what's going on outside the bladder. I'm going to evaluate what's inside the bladder, but really want to get as much of an idea as possible. That's number one. Number two, going in, you have different goals when you do resections for different patients. So I love your combination of diagnostic and therapeutic, and it it varies for every patient. For the older, sicker patient with low-grade disease, you're trying to safely get rid of all the tumor, and that's it. For someone with muscle invasive disease, if you're doing a repeat resection before radiation therapy, you want to get rid of as much of that cancer as possible. So you have different mindsets. So knowing that ahead of time is important. And the last thing is never underestimate a TURBT. Communicate with your circulators. Tell the anesthesia folks ahead of time, this is going to be, you know, no hill of bay on this one. You know, this is going to, I'm going to be here for a while. You need to know. So that communication, and that follows up afterwards too, making sure the pathologist knows separating specimens. And I'll tell pathologists on the pathology to, you know, make sure that they know they've received chemotherapy, they've received BCG, everything we can to try to give as clear a picture for all the treated physicians, I think will be really important. That's great. So I appreciate this opportunity, Aditya. It's always great to see you virtually. Hopefully I'll be able to see you in person at our upcoming day, you and me. All right, Sam. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.